to the show, everybody. Welcome to the show. Um, man, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of moving parts in today's news. Um, you know, at the last minute here, I'm just going to decide to throw into the show. I'm going to do a quick little update on uh, what's happening with the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Um, everything I say is subject to just be totally outdated by the time it even hits YouTube, which is not even that long from now, but you never know. Um, so I'm going to throw that in there. And then I got, uh, I got into it with Dave Rubin on Twitter. We got the R. Kelly verdict to talk about. I got, uh, I'm going to talk about how my own audience is not with me on the issue of vaccine policy. Fascinating. We'll talk about the science of the COVID booster shot. Do you need a COVID booster shot? Yes or no? Why? Why not? Um, Obama hops into the debate to say he's in favor of Biden's $3.5 trillion bill, which is kind of surprising because it sort of outshines anything he's ever done in his life. Uh, So, you know, I thought there'd be the Bernie effect there where he might just stay quiet. Um, So a lot of stuff to talk about. I'm currently typing something in to... Google, and okay, we're all set. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Um, Don't go anywhere, because I got everything I just said and much, much more. Uh, The Kirsten Cinema update is beyond obnoxious and annoying. I got every, every corner of the political spectrum is going after Tulsi Gabbard now. And I learned what the Mormon sex act soaking is. What? (laughs) All right, let's jump into it. Here we go. I want to give everybody a quick update on what's happening with the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. Now, allow me to say up front, by the time this segment hits YouTube, which is not very long from now, but it's still possibly the case that by the time this hits YouTube, this might all be outdated because I'm sure there are a lot of fast-moving parts and um, things can be changing by the minute. But as of right now, as I'm talking to you, there is a vote that's scheduled to be tomorrow, tomorrow. Now, um, it was already pushed back a little bit by Pelosi. Remember, Pelosi originally agreed and told the right-wing Democrats, sure, we're going to have a vote on the bipartisan infrastructure bill that already passed the Senate by September 27th. Well, now we're past September 27th. The vote is going to be on September 30th, I believe, which is tomorrow, tomorrow. So where are we at? What's going to happen? Because if the vote's tomorrow, we might already, uh, you know, begin to see the picture unfolding in front of us. So here's what we know for sure. Here's the recap. Joe Manchin is still refusing to commit after Biden meetings, and he's not giving him a top-line number. By the way, Kirsten Cinema, same thing, not giving him a top-line number. They've had a number of meetings, and it's been like, well, isn't the weather nice outside today? Oh, yeah, the weather is gorgeous. Well, what do you think about the state of the world today? Oh, I don't know. What do you think about So there's been nothing, no actual number given by Manchin. Bernie is issuing a battle cry to progressives to kill the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Schumer has turned on Pelosi, saying he doesn't agree with a Thursday vote on the bipartisan infrastructure deal. And the president is apparently MIA, and he's not whipping votes. So that's where we are right now. My understanding is it's less than nine House Democrats who are right-wing and corporatists and extremists who are blocking this. Um, and in the Senate, Manchin and Cinema are at least the only vocal ones who 
are not on board. And again, most importantly, they're not even saying, oh, your number is 3.5 trillion. I would be okay with 2 trillion. They're refusing to give a top line number, which makes the whole process of negotiation very difficult. So what the hell is going to happen? Well, the vote is scheduled for tomorrow in the House on the reconciliation package, the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. This is the test for progressives. Here we are. Are you going to hold strong? Excuse me. I'm sorry. The vote is not for the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. The vote tomorrow in the House is for the bipartisan infrastructure deal. It's about $1 trillion or so, which already got through the Senate. So this is a test. Are they going to hold strong? Are they going to put their middle finger up? Are they going to throw their weight around? Are they going to say, no, we meant business? Well, we actually have our answer already. The Congressional Progressive Caucus, which on paper I believe has a little bit over 90 members, um, they released a statement and they said, we weren't bluffing. And the specific number that we heard from Pramila Jayapal and others is that uh, about 50 left-wing Democrats, relatively speaking, of course, uh, are like, no, I'm going to vote against this bipartisan deal. 50 of them, about 50 of them are going to hold strong and say, no, we're going to vote this down. That's the reporting that we have right now. That's the information that we have right now. Uh, If about 50 of them vote down the bipartisan bill, then they're holding the line and doing the thing that we asked them to do, and they're letting everybody know we mean business. We're serious here. So, listen, you got to give credit where credit is due, because this is all that the left base and the American people have been asking for to this point, is that there's a reason why progressives generally don't have a seat at the table, because they always roll over, and they always give the corporatists what they want every step of the way. Well, now you're asserting yourself, and now you're saying, no, you have to deal with me. I'm, I get a seat at the table. I'm a part of this negotiation. I have demands. But more importantly, I'm representing the American people. Because, guys, I've shown you the numbers. The polling on this reconciliation bill is overwhelming. The poll, it's like 62% favorable overall. Then when you go to the individual issues, the individual policies within the bill, forget it. It's even more popular. It's over 70% popular, even among Republicans, when it comes to stuff like universal pre-K and daycare. These are things that help regular people. So, of course, you should have a spine, have a backbone, and fight and say, we meant business. And, again, all the reporting right now is that's what they're going to do. So credit to the 50 or so members who are like, no, we're serious. We're going to vote this stuff down. Got to give them credit. We tell them we want them to leverage their vote. That's what they're doing. It would be completely hackish to say, that's what I want you to do. And then when they do it, you're nowhere to be found. You don't don't say anything. You don't credit them or anything. That's hackish. Now, but what the hell is going to happen? How is this going to unfold? I don't know. (laughs) That's my answer. So it's possible that Pelosi delays the vote again. That's possible. Um, It's possible that there's some last-minute deal where you do get Manchin and Cinema give a number and then Biden – and the House progressives counter with another number, and then let's say for argument's sake it's $2 trillion or $2.5 trillion package, and you can whip the votes of the progressives very quickly, and then, or you get enough of them for that bill to pass, 
with a reconciliation package of two or two point five trillion, and um, and the bipartisan deal would then pass as well. That's possible. But right now, the thing that looks most likely is that this thing is going to get a vote. The bipartisan deal is going to get a vote as is, and it's going to go down. It's going to go down. And then we're in no man's land. I don't know what happens from there. I don't know where we go from there. But let's be clear. If that happens, it is 100% the fault of the corrupt corporatists, of the extremist right-wing Democrats. It'll be Manchin's fault. It'll be Cinema's fault. It'll be the right-wing Democrats in the House, because the original negotiation, the original deal was these bills go together. They don't go together. I don't want to hear it. So they renege on the deal. And what's going to happen is the media is going to point fingers at the progressives and act like it's their fault when they're the ones who are upholding the original deal. So the line of argument I want to see from the left now is, hey, we're the ones who are holding strong for the Joe Biden agenda. We're backing the president. You know who's not backing the president? You know who's agreeing with the Republicans? It's the right-wing Democrats. It's the corporate Democrats. It's the extremist Democrats. It's Manchin and Cinema. And by the way, we just got news that Kirsten Cinema is meeting right now, right now, with uh, donors giving $5,800 a pop. And these are all donors who are against the reconciliation package. So maybe that's why she doesn't want to give a number, because there is no number. Because she's planning on not running for re-election or changing parties or just getting out of D.C. and getting paid, son, becoming some sort of lobbyist. Maybe that's the problem. Maybe both Manchin and Cinema have thoughts of, I'm just going to leave D.C., so I'm going to blow up this whole thing. I don't know. But they are definitely the problem. All we can do is hold our breath and sit back and watch how this unfolds from here. Next. Oh boy, my fighting. Here we go. My fighting. So uh, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. Forgive me, audience, for I have sinned. Uh, I try my absolute best, as you all know, to uh, stay out of direct fights and arguments and personal stuff and, and online beef. I feel like new media commentators have this reputation of being a little bit like reality stars, and I kind of despise that. Um, I think that's cheap, and I would hope for more for this new media political commentary space. But I couldn't help myself the other day, and I lashed out. I lashed out at what one would call an easy target, Dave Rubin. So uh, Dave Rubin tweeted out a breaking point segment, Crystal Ball's monologue, And it's titled, Tulsi Gabbard accused of shifting right going full Dave Rubin. And Dave Rubin responds to this, tweets it out and says, wait, does this mean she has a dog named Clyde and knows how to make a killer reverse seared tomahawk ribeye? So he's like, tee hee hee, being all cutesy about it. Um, I don't know why, but that really got under my skin. It really got under my skin. So I responded to it. What it means is, Tulsi's a vapid, ideology-free fame chaser desperately looking for an angle or niche that she found by feeding Fox drunk losers stale right-wing talking points. Glad I could clear that up. And then I said I would tweet this at him, but he has me blocked. Okay, but, and the free speech lover has me blocked is what I should say. Um, so let's pause here for a second. 
I do think some of you might think that's a cheap point. I actually don't think it's a cheap point. The idea of like, you claim to be all about open dialogue and freedom of speech and things of that nature, but then you block like every single critic of yours. And it is true. Like virtually everybody who's been a critic of Dave Rubin, he's blocked. Um, I think that's a beta move. I think that's a cuck move. I think that shows you don't believe in dialogue and you don't believe in free speech. Um, you know how many people I've blocked on Twitter in my entire time on Twitter? Donut. Because I actually believe in, in free speech, or at least open dialogue in the sense that I'm a public figure to an extent. You have a right to see what I'm saying. Now, I don't have to see what you're saying back, but I think you have a right to see what I'm saying. Um, he doesn't believe that, obviously. Now, the other thing is, I, I don't actually think Tulsi is nearly as bad as Dave Rubin. Um, Tulsi is significantly more intelligent than Dave Rubin. I have no doubt that if you go issue for issue on paper, Tulsi's still way better than Dave Rubin. But, of course, the point of that monologue from Crystal, and I highly recommend everybody go watch it, or just recommend the last few segments we did on Tulsi on this show, you'll see very clearly that's exactly what's happening with her. And Dave Rubin knows what it means to go full Dave Rubin. He's just trying to be cutesy and clever. Tee hee hee, aren't I funny? No, you're actually not funny at all. And everybody knows what going full Dave Rubin means. It means having almost like a religious conversion, but when it comes to politics. So I've told you guys this before. I have zero issue. In fact, I think it's a wonderful thing if you, as a political thinker, evolve over time. If you change your mind on two issues, three issues, if you evaluate the evidence, look at the data on whatever the issue may be, and then your mind changes, or you know, there's a new caveat that you have in there over some issue. That's, that's called being human. And it, you'd actually be silly to not evolve on anything over the course of you know, growing into an adult. That's one thing. But what's happened, what happened with Dave Rubin, and that's obvious that this happened with him, is he had a conversion on virtually every issue over the time span of like a year or two. Well, then it begins to look very suspicious. And now I have to look into, well, what are the motivations here? You know, what are your intentions? Because it doesn't seem like a sincere change of heart. It's, you know, it's like radically going, well, I was a, you know, I was a, a fundamentalist Mormon. Now I'm a fundamentalist Muslim. And I changed my mind in the, in the course of three or four months. What? <laughs> How did that happen? I have to think maybe there's something wrong with you if that's the case. Or there's an angle. You have an angle. And so in the case of Tulsi, I was a big defender of Tulsi for a very long time. I thought pretty clearly that back during the Democratic primary, she was probably the second best candidate. I mean, look, it's debatable. Now, in retrospect, you might say, I don't know, maybe Marianne was actually the second best candidate. Um, and I guess Tulsi's roughly in the same ballpark as Yang. But she was up there in the group of candidates who I would defend. Now, the reason I defended her, and I would still to this day in certain ways, is that, yes, she was, just like Yang was, they were sort of viciously and unfairly smeared by the media over and over. And the media was saying things that were absolutely ridiculous, like, you know, she's a Russian agent or whatever. And um, I think that the media was lying or caught up in this Russiagate hysteria, and they were smearing her, and they didn't like that she had sort of backed Bernie early on in 2015, and snubbed the DNC. So in many ways, she was a hero. But now, when you see what she's doing, you know, she went away, she was doing something with the military for a while, she came back, and I thought, well, hey, 
what's going to happen with Tulsi? She is probably going to, since she positioned herself as the anti-war candidate. That's her thing, is I'm the anti-war candidate. I was thinking, well, the second she's back in the national dialogue, the first thing she's going to do is she's going to go full speed ahead, going after all the liars and the smear merchants and the misleading people in the media and the exaggerators who were being vicious and ruthless and wrong in criticizing Biden over the withdrawal in a way that was totally unfair. Well, to my surprise, she didn't do that. She didn't go after the media. She didn't say they're really being unfair about his Afghanistan withdrawal. There were 100,000 people who were evacuated. Our people were evacuated, including many Afghan allies. Now there's zero boots on the ground, which is something that I didn't think Biden would do that. I was wrong about Joe Biden. I thought he's not going to get us fully out of Afghanistan. That's nonsense. He might say we get out, but leave boots on the ground. No, he actually got out. No boots on the ground right now. So I thought tremendous credit on that specific issue. He's still terrible on Iraq. He's still terrible on Syria. He's still terrible on Somalia. A lot of foreign policy things. Iran, he didn't get back in the Iran deal. But on Afghanistan specifically, he did the right thing. So I thought, here I am. I'm one of the only loud, aggressive voices. There were a handful of others. Uh, Crystal and Sagar were loud and aggressive in defending Biden against the media smears on Afghanistan. And to his credit, Michael Tracy was loud and aggressive on that front. But there were very few of us. And I thought, well, Tulsi's going to hop in the conversation, and she's going to come in like a bat out of hell, and it's going to be a wrap. She's going to go after him, and she's going to be right. To my surprise, she didn't do that at all. She didn't do that at all. Um, and then, and then she went on Tucker. Tucker threw a softball down the center of the plate. Hey, there was a revenge retribution drone strike from the Biden administration. And guess what? It killed children, seven children, 10 civilians, including an aid worker. And there's going to be no accountability for this. What say you, Tulsi? Softball down the center of the plate. And what does Tulsi do? Swing and a miss. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, civilian casualties are bad. But the real thing we should be talking about here is Islamism, because we're going to have to take this on. We're going to have to do it in a military way. We could either do boots on the ground, invasion type stuff, or we can do, you know, air warfare, drone strikes and, and, and use our fighter jets and do it that way. That's what's called a false dichotomy. Hey, I either have to do boots on the ground invasion or I have to bomb you from the air, or you don't have to do either one. So, but that, that was her commentary. In the midst of a story about our air power killing 10 civilians, she's like, Islamism is bad, and our only, we have to do airstrikes, because what else are we going to do? No, 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 no. That's where she really lost me. And then she kept going on Fox News. Now the criticism is coming. Joe Biden is dictatorial, not for illegally deporting 690,000 migrants using Title 42. No, he's dictatorial for criticizing the Border Patrol for being needlessly aggressive against Haitian migrants who were crossing the river and had food because they didn't want to starve to death, so they had to go back to Mexico to get some food. Biden was too mean to the aggressive Border Patrol agents who were threatening the agents on horseback and using their reins like whips. No, 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 no. Now you totally lost me. And now I got a question, what the fuck are you doing? Because now your whole focus was, I'm against war, I'm against war, I'm against war, I'm similar to Bernie. And now, you're, now your whole focus is, Don't defend Joe Biden on the one amazing thing he did, which is getting out of Afghanistan in any serious way, in any vociferous way, and now go after Biden from the right on immigration when he's already deported more people through Title 42 than Donald Trump in four years? No, 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 no. So anyway, I tweeted this. 
Evolving on a few issues over time is called being human. A complete shift in focus and rapid change of ideology like a religious conversion over a short time is not. Tulsi couldn't even hit the softball of droning kids is bad that Tucker threw at her, shifted to Islamism bad. Tulsi called Biden dictatorial, not for using Title 42 to deport 690K migrants illegally, but for being mean to the Border Patrol when they were caught being needlessly aggressive to Haitian migrants who had to cross the border back to Mexico to get food and not starve to death. If you label yourself the anti-war Democrat, you didn't mount a thorough defense of Biden fully leaving Afghanistan, especially you said you were, and that's painfully obvious to all with a brain. So, everybody knows what it means to go full Dave Rubin. Dave Rubin is somebody who shifted from, I'm somewhat on the left, to, I'm, I'm actually a classical liberal, and I'm sort of in the middle, to, I'm just going to be a worse version of Ben Shapiro or Steven Crowder. I'm just going to go hard right wing and try to get old. What's his name? Larry Elder? I think Larry Elder, right? Larry Elder elected in California for governor. I'm going to go full pro-Trumpism. No, no, no. Dave Rubin is not an honest actor. Dave Rubin was looking for an angle and looking for a niche and totally vapid, totally ideology-free. He found a lane. I'll be the former left-wing guy who's now converted to the correct right-wing positions. And guess what? Now that's gotten stale. And everybody already knows he was the former left-wing guy. He's been right-wing now for a while. So his whole thing is sort of petering off because he doesn't have the, the interesting angle of, like, I was this and now I'm this. So, again, in the case of Tulsi, she's not as bad because she's not nearly as dumb as Dave Rubin, not even close. Um, and I'm sure she's still correct on a lot of the issues. But I don't like what I'm seeing. And it does look like there's an angle. And it does look like there was a choice made to go in a certain direction. And uh, I don't respect that at all. You know what I respect? I respect people who, uh, first of all, I'm convinced are honest actors and telling people exactly what they think all the time. And we'll do that regardless of where the chips fall. Even if it means pissing some people off. Even if it means uh, getting under some skin. Even if it means losing friends or whatever. Um, you got to keep it real all the time. And again, you make your own mind up. Go watch the last few secular talk segments on Tulsi. Go watch the uh, crystal ball monologue on Tulsi. But virtually everybody. Jimmy Dore was the biggest Tulsi defender on the planet. Even he said, well, this is all heartbreak for me because I was wrong about her too. I'll let you guys make your own mind up, but look at all the evidence before you do. I think it's pretty clear, even though Tulsi's not nearly as dumb as Dave Rubin. Um, there's a certain trajectory that's clear to see to anybody with a brain. Okay. All right, next. R. Kelly has been found guilty of all charges, including racketeering and sex trafficking. Um, so let me go ahead and show you a news clip on this. R. Kelly is going to prison. The question is, for how long? A jury today convicted the R&B star on all counts, all nine of the racketeering and sex trafficking charges against him. They found R. Kelly guilty of being the ringleader of a decades-long scheme 
to recruit and groom women, underage girls, and boys to sexually exploit them for his own benefit. Prosecutors argued during a six-week trial that he used his fame and his money to lure his victims, then control their lives, forcing them to have sex with him, even that he knowingly gave them herpes. The jury deliberated for less than 10 hours total, four on Friday, five plus today. His sentencing set for May the 4th. He could get up to life in prison. David Henderson now, civil rights attorney, CNBC contributor. David, as a special crimes prosecutor, you, you prosecuted cases. Mm, it froze. Let's hope it unfreezes. Similar to this one over and over. Explain why racketeering here and what, what it means as a conviction. So, having prosecuted these, they're very difficult cases to win when you only have one victim during the trial because juries always find a way to second-guess people. The advantage of trying it as a racketeering charge is you're saying it's a criminal enterprise where Kelly was promoting his music and his brand to exploit people. So the jury got to hear from 11 different people and 45 total witnesses for crimes spanning three decades. R. Kelly could be facing, it looks to me like, up to 140 years in prison. How does sentencing for something like this typically play out? Shep, it's hard to say because you don't see cases like this one very often. I would say if this were the only case, he'd be looking at enough time to probably keep him behind bars for the rest of his life. But you have to remember, there are two more cases coming after this one, another federal suit and a state court suit in Illinois. When you combine those three, the likelihood of him seeing daylight again, almost non-existent. But what about an appeal? Does he have grounds? Is there a case? You know, Shep, the rule is when the feds come after you, they've pretty much already got you. And so just watching the way this trial was, was handled, I think it's locked up pretty tight. And even if it wasn't, you can dodge one silver bullet, nobody dodges three. So I don't think an appeal is likely, but if one did succeed, they still got two more shots. R. Kelly, guilty on all counts. David Henderson, thank you. So it doesn't look like what's going to happen with this is the same thing that happened with Bill Cosby, where after the fact they were able to get him on a technicality that uh, the process was violated and um, – Therefore, he has to be let go. R. Kelly is caught in a much more severe way, um, way more victims, way more evidence, way more testimony. The process was followed. It was a clever way that the feds went after him with the racketeering charge. Um, I didn't know this. I didn't remember this. But uh, apparently a couple of years ago, R. Kelly did an interview before he was arrested about all this stuff. Absolutely lost it. Watch. Have you ever had sex no. with anyone under the age of seven? No. Never. No. R. Kelly chose not to testify. In the CBS interview before his arrest, he desperately tried to win over public opinion. I didn't do this stuff. This is not me. I'm fighting for my life. No, I'm not with this. I can't help Robert. I can't help Damn, son. Damn. Um, so I saw the documentary on R. Kelly that gets into all the, the details and stuff. Highly recommend watching it. It is really something else. Um, the specifics that they all have are mind-blowing. He, um, he sort of held a bunch of women hostage at different points. One woman he didn't feed for an extended period of time, and then he gave her 
drugs when he finally did feed her. Um, he would have threesomes with certain women who he considered his girlfriends or whatever, and he would bring in, like, some 14-year-old and would say, like, you know, this, this is what we do, this is part of what we do. Um, super controlling. He would, some, women would need permission to, like, eat something or go to the bathroom or whatever, and there's, there, there's commentary from people who were not sexually abused by R. Kelly, who were, like, at his residence, and they saw some of this stuff unfold, or a woman would come out of a room and say, am I allowed to do X, Y, or Z? And they were like, what? And this went on for a long, long time. He, he used his fame and sort of preyed upon, um, preyed upon people with that. And in some instances would dangle a career in front of their face. Um, it, it, it was disturbing to see. And what's amazing is how long it went on and how many people were involved and how, you know, there wasn't a day of reckoning until now. So, again, all, everything I've seen to this point says you don't have to worry about some sort of Bill Cosby thing happening where he gets out, but I guess you never know. Um, there you have it, man. It, it's a rare instance that somebody with a lot of money and a lot of power and a, a lot of fame goes down on something like this. So I think it's definitely to be celebrated. Again, if you watch those docu- if that documentary... I think it was multiple parts, but I don't remember. You'll see, uh, I think the case was pretty overwhelming, what went on. Pretty overwhelming. And I was amazed that there were some of the women who um, ended up getting tangled up in this thing, that they were smart. The woman that he married was really smart. There was a woman he married who was really smart who kind of got tangled up in all this, and now in retrospect, she's like, Jesus, what the hell was going on? Um, And then you have the Aaliyah situation, he married Aaliyah when she was like, I don't know, 14 or 15 or something like that and got an abortion for her. I, I, and he had handlers, too, who were involved. I mean, it was it was a bad situation, man. It was a bad situation. So you have justice being delivered for the victims. And I don't know if there's going to be an appeal, but like they said, they got him on so much stuff, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Okay, next. All right, let's talk a little bit about vaccine policy. I did a poll on Twitter. This is totally scientific. Not, of course, Twitter polls aren't scientific, but um, I did this poll, and the results were interesting. So let me show you. Best vaccine policy. First option is my freedom. That just, in other words, just do nothing. We have the vaccine. That's the end of it. You can get it for free if you want it, but that's it. Then we have vaccine or test, and then we have get vaccinated, no excuse. And you see the results. You see the results. So 21.9% say nothing, 37.9% say vaccine or test, and 40.2% say get vaccinated, no excuse. Yeah, um, my audience is a little too hardline even for me. I don't agree with the get vaccinated, no excuse thing. Um, you guys know my, my preferred position is with the 37.9%. I like the idea of vaccine or test. I like the idea of making the default position that you're going to get the vaccine, but if you're really dedicated to opting out of it, then you can opt out of it, but you still have to abide by safety regulations and health regulations and get tested to make sure that you're not passing the virus on to other people if you indeed have it. Um, 
I guess the reason why I think get vaccinated, no excuse goes too far. There's a number of reasons. Uh, one of them is everybody knows there are rare instances, very rare instances, but some people do have genuine um, health reasons to not get vaccines. Um, so they, of course, would have to be allowed to opt out in a way. But beyond that, my issue is with the principle of it, that we all sort of agree, or at least if you follow this stuff closely, you agree, you really should be very skeptical of the government and of powerful institutions, because in many ways, they're not looking out for you. Um, they're greedy. They're self-serving. They're you know, slow bureaucracies. There's a number of serious problems, and any objective look at current state of affairs with the modern-day establishment shows it's broken. And there's a reason why people don't trust the establishment. I mean, we've been lied into multiple wars, for example. The people who are the most powerful in the country, who effectively run the economy, don't know what they're doing or are just involved in this to personally benefit. When you look at the history of this country, there's a number, whether it's the Bay of Pigs, the Tuskegee experiments, Operation Northwoods, whatever it is, there have been legitimate conspiracies. CIA involved in overthrowing foreign governments all the time. We just covered the story the other day of them trying to assassinate um, Julian Assange. So you have to be skeptical of power systems. Now, at the same time, I think it becomes stupid when skepticism crosses the line to cynicism. Namely, your position becomes, well, the government or the establishment or the institutions have never gotten anything right ever. Well, that's bullshit. We know that's bullshit. You know, uh, we, we have the polio vaccine, the measles vaccine, mumps, rubella. Um, those things all worked. And other various forms of medicine, I say all the time, just because I hate big pharma doesn't mean antibiotics don't work. They do work. So you have to be willing to be skeptical, but also open-minded enough and reasonable enough, and you have to view things on a case-by-case basis enough to understand that it's not like everything is bullshit. It's just that most things are bullshit. So my issue with get vaccinated, no excuse, is the principle of, well, the government can tell you to put something in your body and you literally have no wiggle room to get out of it. I would imagine the black people who were involved in the Tuskegee experiments would think that's a bad idea. Now, again, you could say, well, Kyle, that was a long time ago. Things are different now. That's without a doubt true, but how different are they? Do you trust the government across the board to always make the right decision and putting stuff in your body? I certainly don't. I mean, listen, we want to talk about a recent story. We had set up a fake vaccination program in, I think it was Pakistan, to try to get bin Laden. That was recently. So don't tell me we can't create a little bit of wiggle room. Don't tell me we can't have a sincere religious um, you know, exemption or a sincere ideological exemption. Part of freedom is having the freedom to be wrong. Now, again, this is an instance where the COVID vaccine works, the data is overwhelming, everybody should get the vaccine. There's no doubt about all that. But just because the default setting should be you're going to get vaccinated doesn't mean that you can't give people a way to opt out of it, even with the mandatory vaccination for going to school, well, if you're really committed to not having your kids vaccinated, you can homeschool them, you know, and some people probably do. Tiny number, but hey, some people probably do. So by the same token, 
I have no doubt. They're not just right-wingers, too. There are plenty of left-wingers who are truly committed to this anti-vax thing. I don't want to put anything, like, impure in my body or whatever. Okay. Um, well, then, when you go to your job, you have to get tested either every day or every week or whatever it is, whatever the policy is for your individual job in question. So I just I don't see the problem with saying if you're not vaccinated, you just have to test all the time. Because effectively, you're protecting everybody to the same extent or a similar extent if you have the testing allowed. You see what I'm saying? And again, the, the problem is with the principle of the government saying to people, you have to put something in your body, and there's literally no way out of it. I'm sorry, but I do think the correct word for that is authoritarian. Now, again, you can make the case to me, well, Kyle, it might be authoritarian, but it'll actually have better outcomes. I think that's true. And I think sometimes that is true, that sometimes if you restrict liberty and do something in a very hardline way, yes, the public health outcomes would be better because then we'd have 100% of people vaccinated and or 99.9% of people vaccinated and COVID would be eradicated sooner. But, but the trade-off is there is no more freedom, there is no more liberty, there is no more wiggle room, and now you've laid the precedent of the government can put in your body whatever they want to put in your body and you have no way out of it. And I wouldn't trust them in every single instance with my body to put stuff in my body. Um, I still wanna have the ability to opt out even if it make, we make it a little difficult for people to opt out because in this case it's overwhelming and it's the pro-vaccine side is correct. So anyway, that's my thing on it. Um, I think the total laissez-faire freedom, don't do anything approach is not strong enough and doesn't account for public health and safety enough. But I think the no wiggle room, you must get vaccinated is too authoritarian for my tastes. So anyway, congrats on the 37.9% of you who are absolutely correct on this. And the rest of you, I know you'll change your mind after watching this segment. Okay. All right, next. So I've been biting my tongue on this conversation about a third COVID shot, a booster shot, um, because I wanted to wait and see where the evidence fell. And now we kind of have our answer. So take a look at this. This is really interesting. CNBC is reporting, data shows COVID booster shots are not appropriate at this time, U.S. and international scientists conclude. An expert review of scientific evidence has concluded the COVID vaccine booster shots are not needed at this time. For the general public, a group of leading U.S. and international scientists said Monday, the conclusion in the peer-reviewed journal The Lancet comes a week before the Biden administration says it plans to begin offering the shots to the general public. An FDA advisory group is meeting Friday to discuss the data to support the wide use of boosters. So, now, since this came out, we got the news that the booster has been approved, but only for, I think, people who are very elderly um, or they're immunocompromised. Now, so why is it? that they would approve it for the very elderly and the immunocompromised, but not for your average American who's like middle-aged or younger. The answer is actually very simple. If you're immunocompromised, you might get one COVID shot or two COVID shots. And since you're immunocompromised, your immune system may not have um, done a, a good enough job in understanding what the vaccine is and then creating the necessary antibodies and the other sorts of immune responses that would protect you if you actually got COVID. Now, it's possible in many immunocompromised people that the two shots do do that, but if you are immunocompromised, your immune system, by definition, is not as strong, 
So there is no downside to giving another shot to try to, um, you know, elicit that better immune response. So that's why it would be approved for them. There are studies that show, I think you get like a, a 12-day boost uh, in the antibodies and extra protection if you get the third shot. Um, but here's the really important part, really interesting part. They say the reason why you don't need it if you're like under the age of 65 and not immunocompromised is because all the evidence to this point shows you're pretty much fully protected um, against not just the original COVID variant, but the Delta variant. And it's not just, and I just learned this, I didn't know that this was the case, but it's not just antibodies that, you know, the vaccine that your body creates as a result of the vaccine that protects you from the virus. There's other parts of your immune system that I guess have more of like a long-term memory and all the evidence to this point shows all you needed was the original vaccine regimen in order for your body to have the long-term protection against COVID. Now, I don't know, is this surprising? Because I remember when I, was, when I was a kid and you had to get the shots to go to public school, you get the vaccines for whatever it is, measles, mumps, rubella, and a number of different things. And you didn't have to go get a shot every year for those things. You'd have to go get a shot every two years for those things. I think there are some where like the tetanus shot, for example, you're supposed to get it like every 10 years. But for a lot of the vaccines, you get it once and you're dunsies, son, like it's over, you're good. And so it turns out the, all the evidence we have to this point shows that if you got the COVID vaccine, you're good, like you have long-term protection. Again, it was only approved through the FDA for elderly folks and for the immunocompromised, because I guess the idea is in the immunocompromised, you're trying to make sure you get the immune system up to the point that it needs to be in order to deal with COVID but in the same way that uh, an average age or, or middle-aged or younger person would have a strong immune response immediately from the original vaccine regimen. So this, I think, is a good litmus test, too, and I think it's important because a lot of people love to say stuff like follow the science. And it, that's great. You should follow the science. But here's the reality. Now we know based on this study in The Lancet, based on the expert review from uh, U.S. and international scientists, that if you follow the science, you actually shouldn't get a booster shot if you're, whatever, under the age of 65 and are not immunocompromised. That's what the science says. And in, in my experience, what you find is a lot of people who claim to follow the science, they don't actually, like, they actually say, like, no, I want to get the booster shot. Okay, but you don't have to. That's what the science says. You're good. So then you could start getting into the conversation of what? Who's going to push for a booster shot? Who's going to be on the side of everybody needs boosters? Pfizer and the pharmaceutical companies, because they know more money for us. So originally, when you have people say, hey, follow the science and get the shot, that's true, and that's correct, and you should get vaccinated. But now if you have the same people saying, follow the science and get the, get the booster shot, a third shot, well, no, no, no. Now you've gone too far because the data shows you actually don't need the third shot unless perhaps your immunocompromised are very old. So just, uh, listen, I try my best on this show to be objective, to look at the empirical data, and to tell you guys the truth the best I see it. I think this one is pretty clear. You should get the original vaccine regimen. If it's the mRNA one, you get the two shots. If it's the Johnson & Johnson or the AstraZeneca, if you're overseas, you get the one shot. Or actually, AstraZeneca might be two, but Johnson Johnson was one. Um, just get the original vaccine regimen, and then you're good. And, you know, that's a, that's a reassuring thought, isn't it? That if you've gotten vaccinated once, you're good, you know, or you go through the original regimen once, you're good. 
that should make everybody happy. But be skeptical now because everybody pushing for a third shot among the majority of the population is not actually following the science. And I do get a hint of that from a lot of liberals who say follow the science is that now they're going too far. They're not following the science. They want booster shots even though they don't need it. So anyway, there you have it. Get the original vaccine regimen. Don't worry about a booster shot. All the evidence shows you have long-term protection. And just to reiterate, against the original COVID variant, the vaccine was wildly successful in every imaginable way. Against Delta, you still have virtually full protection against severe illness, hospitalization, and death. Um, But you do have some more breakthrough cases with Delta variant. So there's only like 50% protection from getting COVID. Uh, But if you do get COVID, it's very likely to be mild, and it will certainly be much more mild than if you didn't have the vaccine. So um, get the vaccine, but you only have to go through the original regimen. Don't worry about a booster shot. You don't actually need a booster shot. Okay. So this is absolutely fascinating. President Obama comes out and backs Biden's $3.5 trillion bill in a blow to right-wing Democrats. Take a look. Needing to pass comprehensive legislation, and even within the Democratic Party, there seems to be some divide. How do you think he is handling this particular moment, and what does he need to do to pass his agenda? Well, first of all, I I think the uh, Build Back America program, the the package that you described, is something that America desperately needs. Um, You're talking about us stepping up and spending money on providing uh, child care tax credits, making those permanent to help families. Uh, who for a long time have needed help uh, when it comes to things like child care. You're looking at uh, making uh, our infrastructure function more efficiently and effective. Uh, You're talking about uh, rebuilding uh, a lot of uh, buildings, roads, bridges, ports, so that they are fortified against climate change and also that we start investing in uh, the kinds of energy efficiency uh, that's going to be required to battle climate change. So when you look at the overall package, uh, you know, it's got uh, a headline uh, price tag of $3.5 trillion, but that's not a single year. This is spread out over a number of years. And most importantly, it's paid for by asking the wealthiest of Americans who have benefited incredibly uh, over the last several decades and even in the midst of a pandemic saw their wealth and assets rise enormously, asking them to pay a few percentage points more uh, in taxes in order to make sure that we have an economy that's fair for everybody. But you uh, could be concerned that that's how they're going to have to, to pay for it, in essence. I think that they can afford it. We can afford it. I put myself in this category now, uh, and and I I think anybody who pretends that it's a hardship for billionaires to pay a little bit more in taxes so that uh, a single mom gets child care support or so that we can uh, make sure that our communities uh, aren't inundated by wildfires and floods and that we're doing something about 
climate change uh, for the next generation, you know, that, that's an argument that uh, is unsustainable. Here's why this is really surprising. You got the sense that President Obama, particularly when Bernie was running and when Bernie was the leading candidate and everything he was proposing, you got the sense that he really didn't want a Democratic president who was to the left of him, who could prove that more idealistic things were possible. You know, if Bernie got Medicare for All implemented, for example, that would make Obamacare look like the sham that it was, the insurance company giveaway that it was the bullshit, middle ground, unnecessary compromise that it was. And so you got this sense from President Obama that, like, anything to the left of him, he's going to either completely opt out of it and stay out of it or actually actively work to undermine it. Undermine it. Well, now, with this $3.5 trillion Biden reconciliation bill, it's $3.5 trillion over, over a decade, uh, by the way, um, he's coming out in favor of it. And that's surprising because this is – more idealistic and optimistic and more far-reaching than anything he's ever done. And now he's saying, I'm in favor of it. The other thing this does is it signals to so-called moderate Democrats who are really right-wing Democrats and corporate Democrats and extremists. It signals to them, hey, listen, Obama was the guy who just took $400,000 from Wall Street to give a speech the second he stepped out of office. He's the guy who bailed out Wall Street. He's the darling of the establishment in many respects. If he, as a representative of the establishment, says, this is okay, well, that puts a little bit more pressure on the so-called moderate Democrats now, doesn't it? Now, Manchin and Cinema might be a little bit of a different uh, issue because they almost, you know, bask in the fact that they're, you know, right-wing Democrats and almost flat-out Republicans. But to some of the so-called moderate Democrats in the House, and even with – there's a deification of Obama that his poll numbers are really still really high, despite the fact that he was mediocre at best. Um, it actually does add some pressure. So we'll see what happens with this. And just to remind everybody, what's in this bill? Child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition-free community college, uh, lower prescription drug costs, dental, hearing, and vision, Medicare expansion, uh, housing, home care, climate money. Um, and then you have the raising taxes on the rich, like he's alluding to right there. This is better than I think anything Obama got done. You could argue maybe the Iran deal is on par with it or normalizing relations with Cuba is on par with it. But this is really far-reaching and it's probably the best piece of legislation since the New Deal, even though it's already watered down massively and it's a low bar to be things since the New Deal because not many great things have happened. This is that good. So it's big that he came out in favor of it. I don't know if it's going to move anything, especially with the vote on the bipartisan bill tomorrow, but we shall see. <laughs> Ooh. Excuse me. I must have COVID. <laughs> All right, next. This is an amazing video. The um, Prime Minister of Barbados gave a speech at the UN and just absolutely torched greedy, rich nations. Take a look. If I use the speech prepared for me to deliver today, it would be a repetition a repetition of what you have heard from others and also from me. Equally, how many more times will we then have a situation where we say the same thing over and over and over to come to naught? My friends, we cannot do that anymore. How many more variants of COVID-19 must arrive 
how many more before a worldwide action plan for vaccinations will be implemented? How many more deaths must it take before 1.7 billion excess vaccines in the possession of the advanced countries of the world will be shared with those who have simply no access, no access to vaccines. In the words of Robert Nesta Marley, who will get up and stand up? Who will get up and stand up for the rights of our people? Who will stand up in the name of all those who have died during this awful pandemic? The millions. Who will stand up in the name of all those who have died because of the climate crisis? Or who will stand up for the small island developing states who need 1.5 degrees to survive as we go to COP26? It is not beyond us to solve this problem. If we can find the will to send people to the moon and solve male baldness, as I've said over and over, we can solve simple problems like letting our people eat. Damn. Damn. So her name is Maya or Mia Motley? I like that speech. I like it a lot. And, uh, you know, the more crass example she could have given is, we have boner pills, but not everybody has food to eat. Not everybody has a roof over their head. That seems a little ridiculous, doesn't it? Um, we can send somebody to the moon, but we can't effectively address climate change. And the reason why we haven't addressed climate change in any serious way is what? The influence of big money and corporations and the fossil fuel industry in this instance. She's right. She's totally correct. The other thing is, on vaccines, nobody should forget what's going on with vaccines. Nobody. Um, we have the ability to create enough vaccines for the entire world population. All you would have to do is lift the patent protections that Big Pharma have. So in other words, nobody else is allowed to make generic versions of the vaccine because that would be infringing on intellectual property rights. And there was a time where Biden was like, yeah, I want to lift them. Well, guess what? Apparently all the G7 nations or whatever would have to agree to that. And then you had Angela Merkel was like, no, I'm against that. And so what's happening as a result of that? People are dying. Hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people are dying from COVID when we could have just lifted the intellectual property rights and allowed all the different facilities that can make vaccines to make vaccines. And then you'd have way more people vaccinated and you would save so many lives. It's literally a very clear instance of corporate greed leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands, if not millions. Nobody should forget that. Nobody. And you could even argue when Biden was like, yeah, let's lift the patent protections. He he was being performative because he knew that then somebody else, some other Western uh, world leader would have to be the bad guy. So he'd be playing the baby face and they'd be playing the heel. It's disgusting, man. I don't know how these people sleep at night. Every single facility that can make the vaccine should be making the vaccine, and they should have the full assistance of Pfizer and the big pharmaceutical companies. But no, that's not what we're doing. Instead, we're doing a scam. You know what the scam is? Bill Gates' scam. Oh, we're going to do it as a matter of charity. We're going to donate to the developing world. And they only hit, like, what, 10% of the number that they need to hit? It's a sick joke, man. It's a sick joke. Um, 
Prime Minister Motley, that was a phenomenal speech. And if only we listened to her. Okay. All right, y'all, let me take a quick break. When we come back, Glenn Beck asked Mike Pompeo if he wanted to kill Assange. Morning Joe roasts McConnell. And uh, Tulsi gets it from a libertarian. Stay right there, y'all. We will be right back.
We are back, bitch. All right, welcome back to the show, y'all. Welcome back to the show. Still got a lot of stuff to talk about. A lot of interesting stories that crossed my radar. Um, all right, let's go to Glenn Beck and Mike Pompeo. This is annoying. Here we go. So Glenn Beck had uh, Mike Pompeo on his show, and um, Glenn asked about the new reporting from Yahoo, which found that there were serious conversations and debates happening in the highest level, highest levels of government uh, about kidnapping and murdering Julian Assange. Let's see how Mike Pompeo reacts. Story that broke yesterday uh, from Michael Isakoff, so take it for what it's worth, that says that the gist of the article, you were so obsessed with Julian Assange and WikiLeaks that you and the president were, were looking at really aggressive methods, including kidnapping or an assassination. One scenario included a possible shootout with Russian agents who you believed were going to try to get Assange for themselves. Uh, Glenn, I've seen that piece. I knew they were writing on this thing. Uh, I'd say three things. First of all, it's a cop. We've seen uh, he was a big Russia hoax perpetrator. Yep, he was. Yeah, so so, so take take that for what it's worth. Second, Uh, there are many stories out there now about how the president and I were engaged in things that were crazy, right? There's this talk about that there was an effort to drop a nuclear weapon on China in the last week's administration. This story is of that same ilk, right? Just I, I couldn't tell you who they have as their sources, but those sources didn't know what we were doing. And then the third point, I guess, Glenn, is we were we were very worried about the fact that we had bad actors who were stealing really, really sensitive material from the United States. And I, I, I make no apologies for the fact that we and the administration were working diligently to make sure that we were able to protect this important sensitive information from whether it was cyber actors in Russia or the Chinese military or anyone who was trying to take this information away from us, not just commercial stuff like intellectual property theft, but real national security secrets. And so we were working hard to go after those bad actors who were trying to do that. So was Assange and WikiLeaks, are they, uh, are they journalists in a media outlet or a, or a hostile intelligence entity? So I came to believe that they were, in fact, the, one of the first non-state hostile intelligence entities. They weren't engaged in even crappy reporting like Isikoff does. They were, they were engaged in active, active efforts to uh, steal secrets themselves and pay others to do the same in a way that violated uh, both the central understandings that I think the American people get and, second, violated U.S. law as well. We. We were always careful. Um, I'm all about a big, bold, strong First Amendment, but these folks were acting in ways that were deeply inconsistent with that. We need to destroy the First Amendment to save the First Amendment. That's the line of argument he's making. What WikiLeaks did and what WikiLeaks does is it exposes and brings transparency to corrupt actors behind the scenes. That's what they do. So in other words, they are quintessential journalists. They are embodying the spirit of the First Amendment. They're not destroying the First Amendment. Mike Pompeo just doesn't like that the people they expose are people like him. So that's why. And by the way, notice, listen carefully, go back and listen to the whole thing again if you don't believe me, but there wasn't really a denial in there. Now was there? 
There wasn't really a denial. He spent most of the time talking about, oh, yeah, WikiLeaks, they're a hostile uh, intelligence actor or whatever. And he was talking about, no, they're really bad, and we had to do something about it. And I make no apologies for that. So in other words, uh, you're saying the reporting is basically correct. That's what you're saying. Now, by the way, I need to correct something, too. He says, um, Isakoff was a big Russiagator. If I'm not mistaken, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, even Glenn Greenwald acknowledged this. I think Isakoff was like one of the only original Russiagators who said, you know what, I was wrong. And by the way, credit to him. What more can you ask from somebody if they pushed it and then they were like, you know what, I was off base and the evidence doesn't line up with where I thought it was going to go. Hey, good on you, man, because I'll tell you, I was one of the few people on the left who was, um, you know, at least had some following, and I was very skeptical of what was going on with Russiagate. And so if somebody corrects themselves, hey, credit to them. Now, back to Pompeo for a second here. Glenn Beck is being a total cuck by not holding him accountable, pushing him harder. Glenn Beck has had on, like, Glenn Greenwald, and they've had relatively chummy conversations, which is a whole issue in and of itself, but... Um, Glenn Greenwald and Laura Poitras are some of the journalists that they wanted to label as, you know, foreign actors or whatever. I forget the terminology that they use. Oh, information brokers helping a foreign agent, which is nonsense. We all know that the reporting, whether it's Greenwald on the NSA or whether it's um, the, the WikiLeaks stuff with Chelsea Manning where we learned about war crimes, that's all part and parcel of real journalism. Here's the kind of guy Pompeo is, as if you guys don't already know this. Uh, here's what He said this on camera. There was a camera pointed at him, and he said, quote, When I was a cadet, what's the cadet motto at West Point? You will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. I was the CIA director. We lied, we cheated, we stole. We had entire training courses. It reminds you of the glory of the American experiment. Lying, cheating, and stealing remind you of the glory of the American experiment. He's bragging, he's boasting about how awesome it is that when he was at the CIA, they lied, they cheated, they stole. So what was this new reporting about Julian Assange? The debate going on behind the scenes in the Trump administration was, the right wing of the debate was, let's assassinate him and let's murder him. Or excuse me, let's kidnap him and let's murder him. Uh, the, the left wing of the Trump administration at the time, represented by Jeff Sessions, nobody's left winger, was like, hey guys, calm down, calm down, let's not get crazy here. Let's just try to prosecute him through official channels. So either way, you are totally destroying the First Amendment of the Constitution and ignoring the Constitution that you pretend to uphold. Totally unacceptable, man. And they wanted to make an example out of Julian Assange. Do not report on the powerful. You do not report on the Pentagon and the CIA. You do not show the world our dirt because you know what? It is so damning that everybody hates them when you do it. And that's why they all hate Assange because he did the right thing and he showed the world what was going on, by the way, with U.S. taxpayer money in our name. So Glenn Beck, massive cuck, not pushing back against this neocon imperialist warmonger war criminal guy who casually talked about assassinating Julian Assange behind the scenes, and he just lets him get away with whatever the hell he wants to say. Listen, don't take my word for it. Take Mike Pompeo's word for it. We lied, we cheated, we stole. I certainly believe that. Okay, next.
So the Arizona Democratic Party stood up a little bit here and uh, really threw some weight around. Arizona Democratic Party passes resolution criticizing cinema on filibuster and reconciliation. Let me read you some of this. The Arizona State Democratic Party overwhelmingly passed a resolution on Saturday that criticizes Senator Kirsten Cinema for her opposition to eliminating the filibuster to pass legislation key to the party and for her stance on Democrats' $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. The resolution passed in the committee in a 415 to 99 vote. That's overwhelming. According to Progress Arizona, an organization that advocates for progressives in the state, the measure warns Cinema that the state party will closely watch her upcoming votes, and if she does not vote for the massive Democratic budget reconciliation package, it will go officially on record and give, Senate, uh, give Senator Cinema a vote of no confidence. The Arizona Democratic Party also called on Cinema to support ending the filibuster to allow the passage of voting rights legislation, including for the For the People Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. They urged her to nix the filibuster to help pass other urgent legislation, including the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, commonly referred to as the PRO Act. Okay, so that's really something. To have the Democratic Party in your own state say, we're going to censure you and we're going to vote no confidence if you don't do the right thing, that's a lot of pressure. Now, beyond that, you have 89%. There was a poll coming out of Arizona. 89% say if Kirsten Cinema doesn't vote the right way, much less likely to vote for her in the next election. Now, at the same time this is going on, Kirsten Cinema is meeting with lobbyists and meeting with donors and taking $5,800 a pop from all these groups that are opposed to the reconciliation bill. So here's the terrifying thought, and this is probably the case, guys. So I just want everybody to prepare for this mentally. Um, it is very possible that Kirsten Cinema, that there really is no number that you would agree to, even if you whittle the package down to $2 trillion or $1.5 trillion or whatever, she might not agree to anything. Um, and the reason she might not agree to anything is because she has no intention of running again. And uh, what she plans on doing is maybe leaving D.C. and getting paid, going to be a lobbyist, collecting millions of dollars for the fact that she just served all of corporate America by blocking this whole thing. So she might want to leave D.C. She might want to switch parties or something like that. She might have no intention of running again. So if that was the case, it would be hard for Joe Biden to hold anything over her head if whatever corporate America is offering her is way more than what Biden could offer her, then there's no incentive to support the bill. And so that would be a worst case scenario. And the terrifying thing is it looks like that's what's going on. Because she just, just took $750,000 from Big Pharma. $750,000. At the same time, she came out and said, I don't want to lower drug prices. I want to take that out of the bill. And the other thing is, both her and Manchin are refusing to give Biden a number. So we have the $3.5 trillion reconciliation bill. There have been a couple of meetings. And every time the meeting's over, they go, oh, yeah, they didn't give us a number. They didn't give you a number. Well, the way a negotiation works is you say $3.5 trillion, they say $1.5 trillion. You say $2.5 trillion, they say $2.2 trillion, And you go, deal, let's shake on it. Apparently, that's not even going on. They have these meetings, and Manchin came out and said the other day, oh, yeah, we talked about the state of the world and how everything's going. Like, what? What are you talking about? The crazy thing is, guys, this is the, it looks to me like all hands are on deck in, in some respects. So in other words, 
over 90% of Democrats are already on the right side of this and are like, we want to vote for the $3.5 trillion bill and we want to vote for the bipartisan infrastructure bill. They're all correct on that. Most of the Senate Democrats are correct on all that. Now you have the state Arizona Democratic Party putting pressure on her. Like, this is the most unified I've actually seen Democrats on something that's good, and you still have a handful who are just trying to ruin the whole goddamn thing. Public enemy number one, if you ask me. Public enemy number one. It might be literally because of one person and their selfish, greedy interests. One person might destroy this whole thing for everybody. And when I say this whole thing, what I mean is child tax benefit, universal pre-K, paid family leave, paid medical leave, tuition-free community college, lower prescription drug prices, Medicare expansion including dental, hearing, and vision, housing, home care, major climate money, higher taxes on the rich. One person might blow this whole goddamn thing up. One. One. Something like that really leaves me speechless. Okay. Next. Mm, Here we go. So Morning Joe, to my surprise, uh, like once or twice a week, they decide to randomly start making Bernie Sanders arguments. Now, we can get into intentions and motivations and why are they doing this. I don't know why they're doing it. Um, David Dole had a good theory about Joe Scarborough when it came to him arguing for higher taxes on billionaires and corporations. He said the reason he's doing that is because he doesn't want his taxes to go up. How does Joe Scarborough make his money? Through income. What bracket is he in? The top bracket. They want to raise the top bracket from roughly 36% to 39%. He doesn't want his taxes going up three percentage points. He would rather you tax Bill Gates and Elon Musk and billionaires and corporations. And so that's why he went all in on like a Bernie Sanders argument. Very possible. That very well may be the case. Um, But here he is, yet again making a solid argument, this time against Mitch McConnell. Not provide Republican votes for raising the debt limit. There's no chance. Republicans will help lift Democrats' credit limit so they can immediately steamroll through a socialist binge that will hurt families and help China. The Republican Party has now become the party of default, the party that says America doesn't pay its debts. Keeping the government open and preventing a default is vital to our country's future, and we'll be taking further action to prevent this from happening this week. We we, we certainly know Republicans are raging hypocrites, especially so in the era of Trump, and we obviously are still in the era of Trump. Here are... Here's a party uh, that spent like drunken socialists. You're talking about socialists. This Republican Party spent like drunken socialists over the past five years. They racked up record levels of deficits, record levels of debts. The bills that Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell approved, the budgets, the largest budgets in the history of the republic. Let me say that again. The Republican budgets were the largest in the history of the Republic and ran up 
record deficits and record debt. That is correct. That is correct. In fact, that was pointed out to them when we were having the debate about the 2017 Republican tax cuts, and they were like, we don't care. We're in favor of the tax cuts. So they chose tax cuts for the rich and corporations over deficit concerns and, and debt hawkery. So it was brought up to them. If you do this Reaganomics on steroids and George W. Bush tax policies on steroids, uh, and by the way, 83% of the benefits went to the top 1% in that tax cut package. It's going to blow up the debt and the deficit. We know it's going to do it. This is what trickle-down economics does. They make the claim, oh, no, if we cut taxes for the wealthy and cut taxes for corporations, what happens is that unleashes the beast of the free market so much that there's so much growth that even though it's a lower tax rate as a percentage, you take in raw, uh, more dollars as a raw number because there's just so much profit now. Well, every time that's been tried, it hasn't worked. Reagan exploded the debt and the deficit. George W. Bush exploded the debt and the deficit. The exact same thing happened under Donald Trump. He exploded the debt and the deficit. Record debt, record deficit. Nobody cared. guy like Rand Paul, Mr. Libertarian, I care about the debt and the deficit. Mm. And he voted for that tax cut package, which exploded the debt and the deficit. They're full of it. The real goal was, let me pay back my donors. Let me look after the top 1%. Let me let them run out the back door with all the money, and we'll try to gut social safety net programs at the same time so people in the middle and at the bottom get screwed. So Mitch McConnell was right along with them every step of the way. And now all of a sudden, no, the debt, the debt, it's unsustainable and it's not okay. The other important point is this, guys. Raising the debt limit is not about future spending. Raising the debt limit is about spending we already approved. So in other words, it's just reneging on your requirement to do the right thing. So, I mean, there shouldn't even be a debt limit for that exact reason. You could just decide, oh, we're going to destroy the full faith and credit of the United States government like this for partisan political nonsense theater. That's what's going on. It's about money you already spent. And, okay, so it gets even worse. Classic McConnell, classic McConnell, duplicitous, two-faced scoundrel. What did he do? He goes, we're not going to give any Republican votes to raising this debt limit. Let me assure you that. So Schumer gets up there and goes, okay, um, since you're not going to give any Republican votes, fine. We're going to do it through with uh, 51 votes. McConnell goes, LOL. I'm invoking a filibuster so you can't do it with 51 votes. You just said we're not giving any Republican votes. Schumer said, okay, we'll just do it with 51 votes. And then he goes, we're going to filibuster, so now you need 60. What? What? I mean, they rank partisan hack actors. They would destroy the United States of America if it meant he thought it was going to help the Republicans in the midterms. That's what he would do. So I I just need everybody to understand, don't ever take them at face value. When they talk about the debt, when they talk about the deficit, it's total nonsense. They blow it up every single time they're in office, and then they turn around whenever Democrats are on power and go, oh, who blew up this debt and deficit? You better do something about it. And then what's the implication? Cut the social safety net programs and screw over the working class. And then they would pitch themselves as a savior. Oh, my God, who hurt you guys? Look, oh, the middle class and... The, the working class are in trouble. I guess you should vote Republican because obviously the Democrats aren't helping you. Man. I don't know how everybody doesn't see the game at this point, but they don't. But thankfully, even former Republican Congress people 
like Joe Scarborough, do. And that says something. Okay. Next. So to my surprise, um, it's not just the left that is looking at what Tulsi's doing and going, what? What is this? You didn't defend Biden strongly on the Afghanistan withdrawal. You couldn't hit the softball of, hey, droning kids is bad. What do you think, Tulsi? And she pivots to Islamism bad. She didn't go after Biden for illegally deporting 690,000 migrants. She went after him for being mean to Border Patrol agents because they were being needlessly aggressive toward Haitian migrants. Um, it's not just the left that's looking at this going, what? Here you have libertarian comedian Dave Smith, I guess on his podcast, and he turns on Tulsi hard. God fucking damn it, Tulsi. God fucking damn it. I mean, look, I'm, uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to pull any punches on this segment. And if there are some people listening to this who, because uh, I know we have a certain portion of our audience who are kind of like right-wingers who haven't completely given up on all this fucking idiotic shit, but I don't care. That's not what you fucking listen to my show for, so just fucking deal with this. And if this upsets you emotionally, then good. You need to hear this. Okay, Tulsi, you're the terrorist. That's what you sound like right now. You're the fucking terrorist. Uh, fucking focusing on this ideology that has declared war on us. You were just asked about murdering a family with babies. That's what the question was about. And no one being held accountable. And your answer is how evil their ideology is. That they're, they're this Islamist ideology, which isn't fucking, you know, it's not really Islam, but it is this political ideology, which she broadly defines as Turkey, Iran, Saudi Arabia, like what? Just these entire fucking nations, some of whom hate each other's guts, um, some of whom are allies, you know, just all of them. That's just it. Their ideology, their ideology is so evil. Is their ideology so evil that it would justify killing babies and no one being held accountable for it? Oh, yeah, because that's what you're doing right now. By the way, Tucker Carlson has her on because she's anti-war lady, and he's setting her up to just be like, yeah, this is a fucking outrage. You can't kill babies. I'm sorry, you can't kill babies, and there being no, like, um, you know, fucking, no ramifications, no accountability, no punishment, nothing. You don't even lose your job. I mean, like, what's the appropriate punishment for killing a baby? Like, think about that. What's the appropriate punishment? Because I actually don't think death is good enough. I think you've got to come up with something worse than death. But you're not even fired. I don't even think anyone responsible for this drone strike got a fucking a week of, of their pay docked. So you hear about that, and your response is, well, let me tell you how bad their ideology is. I mean, their ideology will allow them to kill innocent people. But we, we're nothing like that. But, of course, she says, well, no, this is the, the idea here is that we don't need to fight regime change wars. We just need to have these targeted strikes. Tulsi, we're talking about a targeted strike that just killed a bunch of babies. You dingbat. What the fuck is wrong with you? This is the one issue you're supposed to be good on. I mean, look, this is why I have a love-hate thing with uh, libertarians. 
don't get me going in any way, shape, or form on economics when it comes to libertarians because we have complete and total disagreement, but they're great on war and they're great on drug policy. And this is a libertarian talking about war, and he's 100% correct. Look, it wasn't me. Tulsi herself labeled herself as the anti-war candidate. That's her whole thing. Then Biden took all the boots on the ground out of Afghanistan and got 100,000 people out of there, and there was no vociferous defense mounted for him, and there was no fighting back against the vicious and ruthless smear merchants in the media who nitpicked the withdrawal way more than they ever nitpicked the war itself. We allied with warlords with child sex slaves, and the media said, bumpkiss. But the withdrawal, oh my God, pick it apart 97,000 ways, and the implication is, well, I mean, we should have just stayed there. And Tulsi was MIA. Now, I get she was, uh, you know, away doing some military stuff, but then she got back. But when she got back, she didn't mount a defense of him. There was no defense. And then now she goes on Tucker. Tucker throws a softball down the center of the plate. Hey, um, isn't droning children bad? They did a revenge and retribution drone strike. It killed 10, 10 civilians, seven children, and it was an aid worker who they got in his family, I guess. And she brushes right by that. Yeah, yeah, uh, war's horrible, civilian deaths are bad. Anyway, we got to stay in this fight because Islamism's really bad. So your options are boots on the ground invasion, old school war, or targeted airstrikes. Well, here's your targeted airstrikes. In the middle of a segment where a targeted airstrike killed children and civilians, you're like, well, we have no choice. We got to do targeted airstrike. That's what's called a false dichotomy. I had to kill your civilians. It was either with Uh, A boots-on-the-ground invasion, or it was with this airstrike. Or you don't. You don't. And by the way, all these wars that we're in are unconstitutional. You're supposed to get approval through Congress for all the wars. We're currently fighting in Iraq. We're currently fighting in Syria. No authorization for war in Syria. Somalia, no authorization for war in Somalia. Niger, no authorization for war in Niger. We've attacked in Pakistan a few times. No authorization for war there. Bin Laden's been dead for a really long time. They lied us into the Iraq war, but then said we got to get, uh, get Saddam. We got Saddam. What are we doing? What are we doing? Get out, get out, get out. And so, yes, he's right to be pissed. And from the libertarian perspective, the one reason why a libertarian would defend her is because she was the anti-war person. Now it's like, even on this, you fucked up now. And I'll tell you, as somebody who's on the left, the other disappointing thing was the and maybe libertarians, libertarians, a lot of them are actually just for open borders, so they would be even more critical of Tulsi uh, on this than I would be. But she criticized Biden not for deporting 690,000 people without due process illegally under Title 42, but for being mean to Border Patrol agents when they were being needlessly aggressive to the Haitian migrants. So I don't know what uh, Dave Smith's position is on borders, but a lot of libertarians are totally for open borders, so they would be even more harshly critical on her. Uh, than I am, because I view myself as like a moderate on the issue of immigration. But anyway, um, she's getting it from all sides now. She's getting it from all sides now. And you know what? It's fully earned. It is absolutely earned. So there you have it. You know, if you're going to fancy yourself the anti-war person, then perhaps you should try being principled on that front and being truly anti-war and not pivoting to Islamism bad when the conversation is about our illegal drone strike that killed children. So here we go.
Tom Cotton uh, was at a hearing on Afghanistan. Uh, General Milley was there. And um, Cotton's going to ask a ridiculous question, and Milley schools him. What are we to make of this? What steps are we taking to ensure that thousands of Afghans, about whom we know nothing, are not going to be a menace to our troops and our military bases and to the communities into which they're going to be released? Well, Senator, I'm certainly aware of the allegations, and I take the, the allegations very seriously. And I can assure you that uh, our commanders uh, at our bases have what they need to be able to uh, protect our, our troops and our, our families that, uh, that work and live at those bases. And I, uh, I'm in contact with General Van Hurt, the NORTHCOM commander, who has overall, uh, who has overall uh, responsibility for the, for the operation uh, on a routine basis. And, uh, and this is an area that he remains cited on. All right, I just got one final question. General Milley, I can only conclude that your advice about staying in Afghanistan was rejected. I'm shocked to learn that your advice wasn't sought until August 25th on staying past the August 31 deadline. I, I understand that you're the principal military advisor, that you advise, you don't decide, the president decides. But if all this is true, General Milley, why haven't you resigned? <laughs> Melodramatic bullshit. Senator, as a senior military officer, um, resigning is a really serious thing. It's a political act if I'm resigning in protest. My job is to provide advice. My statutory responsibility is to provide legal advice or best military advice to the president, and that's my legal requirement. That's what the law is. Um, the president doesn't have to agree with that advice. He doesn't have to make those decisions uh, just because we're generals. And it would be an incredible act of political defiance for a commissioned officer to just resign because my advice is not taken. This country doesn't want generals figuring out what orders we are going to accept and do or not. That's not our job. The principle of civilian control of the military is absolute. It's critical to this republic. In addition to that, just from a personal standpoint, you know, my, my dad didn't get a choice to resign at Iwo Jima. And those kids that are at Abbey Gate, they don't get a choice to resign. And I'm not going to turn my back on them. Uh, I, I'm not going to resign. They can't resign, so I'm not going to resign. There's no way. Uh, if the orders are illegal, we're in a different place. But if the orders are legal from civilian authority, I intend to carry them out. Thank you. There's a lot of stuff to say about this. So um, Tom Cotton is saying, why didn't you resign? Because you weren't able to keep us in Afghanistan longer. 20-year war and the problem to Tom Cotton was that we didn't stay longer. Reports of profiteering, military-industrial complex, greed, trillions of dollars wasted, nothing to show for it, how many people dead, allying with warlords with child sex slaves. And his problem was, we didn't do enough of that. We should have stayed longer, permanently occupied, as our country falls apart, by the way, as our infrastructure crumbles. Why didn't you resign because you weren't able to keep us there longer? And his answer is correct. Look, it's not the job of the president. He's the commander-in-chief. He was elected. We have civilian control of the military. That's an important part of America. What was I supposed to do? Override that? Now, by the way, he's a little bit of a hypocrite too, though, Milley, because there was reporting that Milley was effectively undermining Trump at the end. Uh, in some ways, the reporting is that he undermined him in a good way, and in other ways, the reporting is that he undermined him in a bad way. The good way in which he undermined him was stopped him from doing any sort of insane, um, you know, last-minute 
attack. Again, this is what they're reporting was. I don't know how true it is, um, but the idea was after January 6th, he was very um, shaken and volatile and was willing to do crazy things. And Milley was like, don't worry, we'll steady the ship. That's some of the reporting. The other reporting is Trump was like, yeah, let's pull out of everywhere with our troops um, after he lost the election. And Milley basically was like, yeah, we're not doing that. So that would be him undermining the commander in chief and civilian control of the military. So, I mean, he could absolutely be a hypocrite on that front. And then the final thing is they bring up refugees early on uh, to Biden's secretary of defense. And guys, uh, conservatives, I don't know how else to say this. They are being vetted. They are being vetted. There was this hilarious story in right-wing media that was like, and this one was caught and they were a, a child rapist or something to that effect. And then in the article, they admit like, and they're being held in an in a independent place and they're going to be deported. So wait, so in other words, the process is working exactly like it should work, and yet you're still criticizing it and saying, we need to vet them. They are being vetted. They are being vetted. They just they need to find a way to complain because it's more brown people coming in here, and they're like, we can't handle that. Okay, that's effectively what it is. But Tom Cotton, the worst of the worst. The thing that drives me crazy is that all of the pressure on Biden is from the right on foreign policy. There was such an outcry over a withdrawal that he's unlikely to do any further withdrawals. Now, ultimately, Biden has agency, and he's to blame if he doesn't do more withdrawals, but certainly doesn't help that the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and the entire media was like, this is the worst thing you've ever done by ending a 20-year war. Ah. It's a goddamn shame, man. It really is. Tom Cotton is the worst of the worst. The neocon hawks would have us invade absolutely everywhere and stay there permanently as our country falls apart. Okay. All right, let's do a funny one, and then I'm going to throw in a, a new one, uh, a last-minute one that I just stumbled across that's some breaking news. So let's do the funny one first. I just stumbled across a little thing called soaking, and I just learned what it was. So New York Post article says, what is soaking? The Mormon teen sex act gone viral. Okay, uh, the article says the following. A new viral video reveals what Mormon teens are doing to get around the no-sex rule. It's penetration without thrusting, an act known as soaking, and its hashtag has some 25.5 million tags on TikTok to date. What's more, in order for the couple to further benefit from soaking, a friend helps them out by bouncing on the bed next to them to get things moving or jump-humping. Quote, when I returned from my Mormon mission and moved to Provo, Utah, I heard rumors about soaking which is when a male places his penis in a woman's vagina and, and that is it. No moving, no thrusting, no orgasms. 36-year-old Gary Nauer, who lives in Oregon, told The Post, I talked to a few friends who had soaked. I hear that Mormons still do this. While on my mission, I had several discussions with my fellow missionaries concerning sex in general. Some talked about soaking. Some would discuss that anal sex is also a way to keep one's virginity, recalled Nauer, who removed his name from church records in April 2020. So I've actually heard that last one before, that there were reports a long time ago, like a decade ago, of Christians who were doing anal and saying, it's not really sex because we're not reproducing, we're not doing it in those holes. So it's, since it's the back door, it doesn't really count. 
Now, they go on in this article, and there's a healthy dose of skepticism, which I think is merited, because I as well am skeptical, but, like, how widespread is this thing really? Probably not too widespread. But have some people tried this shit thinking that they're, like, beating the system? I would think so. I would think so. I mean, what is there to say about this? Uh, To all my people who are listeners, the 1% of you in my audience who are actually very religious and take it very seriously, I have good news for you. God really doesn't care what you do with your pee-pee. Of all the things happening in the world, children with cancer, natural disasters, extreme poverty, some wild percentage doesn't even have functioning plumbing, war. You think God is sitting up there like, hey, y'all, I better not see anything out of the ordinary with with your naughty parts. You better keep it in your pants. Don't you dare have fun, have pleasure, be happy, experiment. Not allowed. Not allowed. And it's also hilarious because if God really is almighty and all-powerful, wouldn't he just think like, well, this loophole is illegitimate, so I'm getting rid of this loophole, and this is just as much sinning as regular sex is? I mean, they act like God is the same as, you know, they act like God wouldn't see like the, the massive tax loopholes we have, for example. Like, oh, the rich should pay more in taxes. But if you have an army of, of lobbyists and lawyers, you can get around it, and you can find a way to pay basically nothing in taxes. You know, God could see that and be like, you're still dodging the taxes, so that's still immoral. By the same token, it's like, yeah, I have the rules on sex. You dodge the rules on sex. You think you found a loophole, but I obviously know that it's a sex act, so I'm going to come after you for it. Come, perhaps not the right word to use in this context. That's the other saddest thing I've ever seen is no orgasm. So I'm going to put my thing in your thing and let's just do nothing and nobody climaxes. Why do you think that's a good idea? Like, if anything, aren't you worse off by the end of that? Because now you're just all horned up and there was no release. Here's my advice to uh, the Mormon teens, assuming, of course, they're of age. I don't want anybody underage doing anything crazy, but if you're of age, just go ahead and do it. Have fun. Forget the soaking. Forget the weirdness of it all. Um, you'll be fine. I promise. It's not sinning. But, you know, we, we have fun on this show, guys, but there are people out there who are really convinced that, you know, God doesn't want you to be gay, or God doesn't want you to have sex before marriage, or all these things. We don't even know if there is a God. <laughs> like, and never mind that, even if there was a God, what, I used to know this number, but I forgot this number. How many religions are there? I think it's 2,000-something. 4,300 religions in the world. I was way off. There are 4,300 religions in the world. How sure are you? You got the right one. Somehow you just happen to, you know, through a lucky roll of the dice, I just happen to be born in the one correct religion. So that's why God doesn't want me to feel pleasure. Guess I better use a loophole. 
we don't know if there is a God. If there is a God, how do we know which religion is true or if any of the religions are true? Maybe it's just a deistic God who created everything and then is out playing Parcheesi somewhere or some shit. We don't know, dog. We don't know. I swear to you, God doesn't care what you do with your naughty bits. God doesn't care. I mean, don't commit any crimes. Don't do anything immoral. Don't do anything unethical. But outside of that, you want to have fun? Go ahead and have fun. Because nobody, without the weirdness of religion and people really believing it, nobody would do soaking. Let's do this incredible tease of a thing where we, I just put it in and then somebody bounces next to me, but I got to make sure I don't finish because that would be terrible. None of it's real, guys. You've been fed myths and fairy tales and absurd rules that don't make sense. And um, it's really terrible because it undermines, it undermines good advice. Like, maybe there's some Mormon parents out there who are generally good, and they're like, hey, you shouldn't steal, you shouldn't hurt anybody physically, you know. You give all this good advice, and then there's like, definitely also don't seek pleasure in any way, shape, or form. And it's like, well, that's terrible advice. Why do you put the terrible advice next to the good advice, therefore undermining the good advice? God, it's just so goofy, man. It's just so goofy. Soaking is uh, the saddest thing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, you have my permission as your parasocial internet daddy. Enjoy your life. All right. Let me squeeze in one last story here. This is a little bit of a breaking news thing, so bear with me. So I have a little bit of breaking news for you guys, at least in terms of it came out right now as we're recording this. Um, YouTube decided to crack down on anti-vax misinformation. So I'm going to read to you a little bit here from Axios. YouTube is beefing up its misinformation policies to crack down on anti-vaccine misinformation beyond COVID-19 vaccinations. Um, Under the new policy, YouTube will terminate the channels of what it calls prominent vaccine misinformation spreaders, including the channel of Robert F. Kennedy Jr., um, affiliated Children's Health Defense Fund, YouTube will also terminate the channels belonging to Joseph Merkula, Aaron Elizabeth, and Sherry Tenpenny, all identified by the Center for Countering Digital Hate as among a dozen playing leading roles in spreading online misinformation about COVID vaccines. Um, YouTube will remove misinformation about currently administered vaccines that are approved and confirmed to be both safe and effective by local health authorities and the World Health Organization. So that means it's not now they're going to go after not just uh, misinformation on the COVID vaccine, but also mumps, measles, rubella, polio, and basically all the vaccines that are approved. Um, So you can't make the claim that vaccines are dangerous, cause cancer, infertility, autism, contain microchips. And it builds on existing rules about the COVID-19 vaccine, which had led to the removal, get this, of 130,000 videos since October. YouTube says it has taken down more than 1 million videos for violating its overall COVID-19 medical misinformation policy. That's wild. Over 1 million videos are removed. There are exceptions to this. So they say, YouTube will allow scientific discussions such as content about a specific clinical trial or videos about historic vaccine successes and failures. Personal testimony will be allowed, such as a parent describing their own experience with their child's vaccination, but with limits, they say. Quote, if the speaker then goes on to generalize and make calls for all parents not to vaccinate or make broad claims about vaccines not being safe or effective, that would be removed. Um, and that's, that's pretty much the gist of it. So they're spreading it from... Now, in another article I read, they talked about how originally they just sort of deprioritized anti-vaccine stuff where it was buried in the algorithm. 
I'm familiar with being buried in the algorithm quite a bit, okay? So I, I understand what that's like. Originally, they deprioritized it. Now they're talking about they removed a million videos for violating COVID-19 medical misinformation policy. And now they're saying, well, we're going further. It's going to be all vaccines. Um, so let's, there's a couple things to, to separate out here. The first point is obvious. Do the vaccines work? Absolutely. They work. The evidence is overwhelming. I've given you all the charts and the graphs and the data on this show, and I'm more than happy to do it again. I mean, over 90% effective against um, severe illness, hospitalization, and death in terms of the COVID vaccine. Obviously, the other vaccines work. I don't see much polio anymore in the United States, do you? Okay, so the vaccines work, no doubt about it. Um, This is the slippery slope and the mission creep that we all warned you about, though. Because once you start censoring, deplatforming, banning, it never stops. You never have just a little bit. And they're broadening it. And guess what? We're going to get a story in a year that they're broadening it more. And so then somebody's going to say, well, hold on. If vaccine misinformation is a problem, why not health misinformation? Okay, so then what? Everything about health, for people to talk about it, is it going to need to be approved by Big Pharma and the FDA? Because I got news for you. There was just a story, I think it was in the New York Times or the Washington Post, a big story about how the FDA said, oh, this thing actually doesn't work for, I think it was an Alzheimer's drug or something. And then they approved it anyway. So the evidence said this doesn't really work, but they approved it. Why? Well, that's the influence of money and politics and corruption. So hold on. Again, COVID vaccine works, no doubt about it. You're telling me, though, that you can only say certain approved things in this area of medicine, but in other areas of medicine, it's the Wild West and anybody can say whatever they want and they have freedom of speech. Eventually, they're going to do mission creep even more. They're going to say, well, no, now... Anything on medicine needs to be pre-approved. It's, it's going way too far. And the other thing is this, guys. We have the answer for the COVID-19 vaccine. There's a lot of things we don't know the answer to. The world is not black and, and white. The world has massive shades of gray. And if you're talking about health stuff, depending on the topic, sometimes there's massive shades of gray. And eventually we're going to get to the point where they say shades of gray aren't good enough. You need to be convinced. But what if the stuff that YouTube allows is the stuff that's official and correct, but then that turns out to be wrong, as sometimes it does. I'm convinced that if these social media platforms existed back during the Iraq War, they absolutely would have banned the people saying Saddam doesn't have weapons of mass destruction, Saddam is not a threat to the United States of America, we shouldn't go into Iraq. People forget they have short memories. At the time, everybody was 100% convinced Saddam's a threat. Saddam has weapons of mass destruction. The war is the right thing to do. So, in other words, the dissenting voice back then on that issue would have been the correct voice. And now I'm convinced, looking at this mission creep, I have almost no doubt that back then, if we had all these social media platforms and the same censorious minds, they would have banned the people who are correct. I mean, what are you going to do, guys? Sometimes the conspiracies are true. Not always, but sometimes. Operation Northwoods is a great example. Bay of Pigs. Tuskegee experiment. It goes on and on. So what do you do? If you say we're going to ban conspiracy theories, which is the other thing that they really want to do, if not have started doing in some respects, where do you stop? What about the JFK conspiracy theory, where a majority of Americans don't buy the official story? Should you just ban discussion of that? Now, I'm not saying some conspiracies aren't dangerous and wrong. The Sandy Hook one is dangerous and wrong, and people were harassed as a result of that. But once you start banning stuff and and not allowing certain things, you no longer have free speech by definition. 
we have to abide by the principle of freedom of speech. That's the whole idea of civilization and enlightenment, is that we talk about these things out in the open. You're allowed to be wrong. Now, am I saying that misinformation doesn't have downsides? Of course, it has massive downsides, and there are plenty of people who've died because they've listened to misinformation. But the answer is not to say, shut down all conversation over it completely. You're not allowed to say certain things, because who's going to watch the watchmen? Who are we going to appoint philosopher kings to be right about everything? Nobody's right about everything. Everybody has their own biases. Everybody has their own problems. Everybody has their own financial incentives. So now we've opened this door. We're, forget the, we're at the bottom of the slippery slope, and it's just going to get worse and worse and worse because it, they're just, we're getting to the point where the, everybody's comfortable with a ministry of truth. Now, again, on the issue of the COVID-19 vaccine, it works. It's right. It's, it's the right thing to do to get the vaccine. The data is overwhelming. But now that you start banning people who disagree, who take a different position, um, it is the definition of authoritarian. That's what it is. It is the definition of authoritarian. And um, I'm certainly not okay with it by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not. And I think the downsides of embracing censorship to this level um, are way worse than the upsides of doing it, particularly because the authorities, the officials, the philosopher kings, the ministry of truth, it's going to be filled with a bunch of idiots. You know, there's just no way to get it right because the world is too complicated and complex a place. There are too many shades of gray. And what you're saying is the values and principles that basically made up the enlightenment and civilized society they're primitive and antiquated and dumb, and we don't need them anymore. Well, we're, we're just going to try to steer the conversation as we want to. Well, guess what? They've already been doing that for a while in other respects, and the impact of that is my show, for example, has been totally obliterated in the algorithm. You know, when you've seen the growth and tracked it from the very beginning, you know the way YouTube works. Early on, the algorithm was a relative meritocracy. The more eyeballs you get, the more eyeballs you're going to get. The more popular you are, the more popular you're going to get. And um, my channel and many others in the independent media space just hit a brick wall. Now, why is that? Very simply because we talk about controversial things. YouTube doesn't want somebody who they can't vouch for, somebody like me, an independent thinker, to talk about war, to talk about Israel and Saudi Arabia and the military-industrial complex and corruption. They don't want that. They don't know what I'm going to say. And so they don't know what I'm going to say. They're afraid I'll say something, and then the advertisers will want to flee the entire platform. So what do you do to protect yourself? De-rank them in the algorithm. Deprioritize them in the algorithm. Push them to the side. Push them to the corner. Don't show his stuff to new people. Try to basically hide it as much as possible within reason. And that's where we are. And that's why, you know, it's, uh, I've hit a brick wall in a thousand ways. So, you know, don't get it twisted. People who are spreading false conspiracies especially about medical stuff. I have no sympathy for them. They're, what they're doing is wrong and dangerous, and people are dying as a result of it. It is not worth throwing away our values and our principles and the enlightenment and free speech and, and our civilized society in the process, because that's all you have in a civilized society is open dialogue. And, um, you know, I don't trust how they're going to implement this by any stretch of the imagination. I think it's a terrible idea even though I know how terrible misinformation is, I know how dangerous it is. They've opened this door. We've gone through the door at 1,000 miles an hour, and there's no stopping it. And there will come a time where 
any dissenting idea on medicine is going to be banned. Any dissenting idea on politics will eventually be banned. And, um, I mean, it's already being suppressed, which is why this show is being suppressed, among others. So, anyway, at the end of this long rant, uh, if you're still here with me, do me a favor. Like the videos. Subscribe to the videos. um, Click that bell so you get a notification every time something drops. And, by the way, I don't plug this nearly enough. I really should plug it more. But I don't trust YouTube. I remember when we had the... um, uh, demonetization crisis, we had adpocalypse, and they pulled the rug out from underneath us like this, just like they're pulling the rug out and changing uh, all the standards like this again. Um, so if you like the content, you can support the show in two ways. Either uh, give a couple bucks on Patreon, link is in the video description box. Uh, I love being funded by you guys as much as humanly possible. And also support Crystal Kyle and Friends and subscribe to Crystal Kyle and Friends and you get the videos and you get them a day early. You can always get it for free in the audio format, but if you want the videos, uh, pay $5 a month and you get the video. So anyway, that's the way. Shameless plug here at the end. That's the way to support uh, myself and independent media and new media. And unfortunately, you know, we are up against a brick wall of terrible policies. And I think it's going to get worse. It's going to get more censorious. And uh, I don't see any way out of it, and it's really scary. All right, guys, I'm done. I love y'all, baby. I'll talk to everybody soon. Have a great rest of your day. David Sirota on Crystal Kyle and Friends this week should be awesome. I'm out. Peace.